0: The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode.
1: I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist
0: at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The Money Money Cafe. Cafe.
1: So uh, Qantas results today, James, um, are they spewing cash or what? They are
0: absolutely coining it, Alan. A a, a profit upgrade, just to put this into a bit of context. So six weeks ago, uh, the market thought that Qantas's profit for the first half of the financial year so that's the six months to December this year would be come in between 350 million and 600 million on in the mid in mid-october Qantas upgraded and said they'd actually come in between 1.2 billion and 1.3 billion for the half and today they've come out and said no we got that a bit wrong demand so strong we now think earnings are going to be between 1.35 billion and 1.45 billion. So that's a $1 billion increase on the lowest market estimates in about six weeks. So, um, And I don't know if you've flown anywhere recently, Alan, but it is super expensive, super busy, um, and the demand is off the charts. So uh, Qantas shares up 45% since the middle of July when everybody was boycotting Qantas and railing against the airline. So that, that hot air didn't last very long.
1: No, and in fact, everyone thought that Qantas was in strife, but it was the
0: opposite. It's unbelievable. Well, well as I've said today, you know, Australia is a uh, land of sweeping planes, but it's also a land of hugely concentrated markets. So it's okay to rail about this stuff, but in the end, there's three choices in the airline market and Qantas flies the most routes most often. So <laughs> your, uh, your fury is somewhat futile, I think.
1: And every 2nd flight's being cancelled or delayed and, you know, it's unbelievable... Um, I mean, I, I don't want to travel at the moment, honestly. Yeah, well, they've had a much better run um, since they've pumped a
0: couple of hundred million bucks into staffing and planes and that sort of thing. So on-time performance in October was much better. There, there's been a few issues recently with wind. I've flown the last week and high winds have basically closed um, one runway at most airports. So, you know, that's not their fault. Um, uh so, yeah, they're going better. I guess Christmas will be the testing time.
1: We should say that we're um, not in a cafe this week because uh, our producer, Greg, is in. Uh, he's sweating it out in Darwin. Um, mm. So um, hopefully he makes it back alive. <laughs> not, to, not too delayed. Not too delayed, exactly. So, um, uh, so the other interesting news of the, of the past week or so has been the departure of the CEO of vicinity centres for apparent apparent sexual harassment. Do you know what's going on there? Do you know much about that? Well, yeah, this was reported by our uh, gun um, property reporter, Nick
0: Lanahan, Um, yesterday, an exclusive. So Grant Kelly uh, had announced his retirement uh, a little while ago. It was announced last week that that had been brought forward and then Nick revealed that there had been investigations into sexual harassment um, uh, by Kelly, that had resulted in a discussion with the board, um, and you know he, he'd um, he's taken his leave early. So he denies all the allegations. We should say that, and he also denies that that's why he's left the board early. Um, but the
1: uh, the but we're woman, sure, that, we sure we sure it's we should we sure even despite his denials, we reckon it's true. Well, so yeah, the
0: the, the the woman. Um, involved, uh, Mari Fester, who was the corporate affairs person there, she's very bravely stood up and put her name to these allegations in the paper um, and obviously stands by them. And the, the board's made it very clear that they have acted on these allegations, brought in an external investigator, and uh, and that's why they say that's why uh, Kelly's taken an early leave. So it's, um, it's all pretty uh, unsavoury, I guess. Um, and it's also an indictment on the world of business like it's 2022 how are we still hearing these stories um you know you, you can only you can only praise uh mari festa for her um bravery here and and um, but it's just mind-boggling to me that that I wouldn't these mind things still uh, keep coming up.
1: I wouldn't mind betting we're still seeing them in twenty
0: thirty two. Yeah, I guess so, Alan. But we shouldn't. I mean, that. It, yeah, it's just not the way to act in any setting, let alone
1: a business setting. Just changing the subject. You see, the thing with Iris Energy uh, yesterday. Yeah, uh, yeah. Share, share price. It's a, a Nasdaq listed Australian company that's got a um, a Bitcoin mining operation in British Columbia in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been it's been listed for twelve months. Listed at twenty eight bucks, and now it's a dollar fifty five. <laughs> so yeah, and some of the backers were, you know, like Michael Cannon Brooks, Alex yes. Waislitz, uh, other people have 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 done their um. Well, they've done they've done a, sh- a sock, if not a sh- uh, if not their shirt. <laughs> I spoke to these guys a few times, Alan, and and, and you know th- this looked
0: to be the sort of safe part of the Bitcoin. World, You know, it was the the sort of selling picks and shovels to miners in a gold rush. These guys were not taking a risk on the price of Bitcoin. They had uh, renewable energy supplies from hydroelectric um, projects up in British Columbia. So they were mining Bitcoin cheaply and relatively greenly. Um, But the fallout, the sort of contagion from the collapse of this crypto exchange, FTX, is just roiling this market. it, and and it's seeping into every corner of crypto. I, I mean, it's, it's a long way back for this sector, you'd think. Yeah, but, the, um, but they
1: were um, and are exposed to the price of Bitcoin. Because they are exposed. Of, to it. That, yeah, I sure. mean, that determines their margin. they've got a they've got a fixed cost of production of bitcoins, uh, and then they sell them for cash immediately. They don't hang on to them. So it's all yes. about the margin. the The cost and, isn't the, the cost isn't quite fixed because you know.
0: Uh, the hash rate which is the the rate at which you mine bitcoin fluctuates depending on how many people in the market so the cost isn't fixed um but yeah I, I, no, but defi- they definitely definitely are exposed it's, I mean, a bit
1: more, it's a bit more fixed than the price of <laughs> price of bitcoin isn't
0: it yeah that's true um I, 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 at the moment though I, i've got to say like i don't see any real spillovers into the the broader economy, like you know, the 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 market capitalization of Bitcoin's gone from three trillion US to under one trillion US, and and you sort of think, yeah, okay, well that's great, but it doesn't affect anyone's house or anyone's um, uh, um,
1: you know, but wealth. Might, or, I suppose it might affect some people. Anyone who bought a year bought Bitcoin a year ago, and you know borrowed money to do so or just yeah. put their life savings in a bitcoin a year ago are in trouble now right yeah what, what, but, what but I, you're right, it's not a, it's not a general contagion
0: yeah and i guess this tells the story of bitcoin in a way doesn't it i mean and i don't mean to be smart over the fact after the fact because i think it's still a really interesting sector but the fact that there's so little contagion speaks to the fact that there's no real utility for bitcoin other than sort of you know Speculating or investing to, 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 to get a profit, you know. Yes, you can use it for uh, to buy some things, but you don't need to. There's it, it's not like you know the only alternative. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of uh, world. It's an interesting way that this is un- unraveling, I think, and we're going to learn plenty about the sector as we as we go on over the next six months. It's actually the
1: third um, Bitcoin bubble and bust. Um, yes. Yes. So uh, you know, I mean, it, it might not be the last, to be honest. Yeah. Well, and and look, I mean, I guess
0: there was, you know, a big, huge, uh, bubble and bust in internet companies, and they came back to, you know,
1: completely dominate the way we live. Uh, yeah, I was looking up. I was looking up what what Apple. What happened to Apple in two thousand? And Apple yeah. shares fell eighty percent. Yes. In, the year, in the year 2000, and now it's the world's biggest company.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So. And, and so there
0: will be ideas and technology that
1: come out of this
0: that will be useful in some way. It, it's just goodness knows how you decide on
1: what's what. No, that's right. Yeah. Now, a lot of people uh, a lot of people are kind of uh, who, who were sceptical of Bitcoin from the beginning are now saying the whole thing was a scam, I told you so, ha-ha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, which uh, is which is what everyone did after the dot
0: com crash too, right? And and you know, they
1: yeah, they, right.
0: they weren't right forever.
1: Exactly, that's right. Um, anything else to talk about? You've been a, Did you go to the AFR had an infrastructure summit? Which, I did. It's a bloody AFRs go going. What's going on with the AFR? They having nothing but summits all the time. Oh, we love summits. So it's like the, it needs to change its name to the Himalayas.
0: Yes, we're a regular bunch of earnest. Uh, Edmund Hillary's down at the AFR, and and exactly. um, we scaled the infrastructure world. Uh, just one little vignette that I found really interesting. So I, I did a panel with Brookfield, which is trying to buy Origin, Oz Super, and Global in- Infrastructure Partners. So between them, they manage one point five trillion dollars. Right, they're all trying to get in on the renewable energy uh, energy transition none of them have any meaningful renewable energy investments in Australia. They have them in other places around the world, but such has been the influx of capital into this area. The returns have basically been competed away to the point where these guys don't really want to play. Um, Now, that might change as now we have an emissions reduction policy and obviously the urgency of the transition is increasing. But I just thought it was fascinating that we've sort of, you know, we see ourselves as a laggard in this area, and, and probably we are. We need to go a lot faster, clearly. But um, the, the, the work we have done and the, the capital that's been invested so far has sort of almost been against the better judgment of some of these really big players. So I guess
1: that shows how much more capital is going to pour into this sector in the coming years. So the, the, you're saying that these companies or these funds aren't players in Australia; they're players elsewhere. But the, the, are you saying the returns in Australia have been competed away? That's right. That's right.
0: Yeah, there's so much money trying to get, trying to start these projects in Australia, that the, the returns haven't been here, and these global giants have they've got lots of stuff
1: offshore, but just not in Australia yet. So fascinating, I thought. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. Can't imagine why that would be so, but there you are. I mean, I I didn't know that there was so much going on in Australia. In fact, uh, you know, there is anyway. Brookfield's trying to play with AGL, uh, with Origin anyway. Yeah, and look, they want to put
0: $20 billion into that, into renewable projects with Origin in the next seven years. So there's some serious capital coming and, uh, uh, you know, the the returns will have to improve as electricity prices rise and, um, you know, the cost of not moving increases with, you know, a form of carbon tax, whatever that looks like and however it's described. Yeah.
1: So do you want to move on to some questions?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll start if you like. Um, Jake asks, uh, due to a death in the family, my wife and I have a significant sum of money, 180000 that we're planning to invest for the long term, 20 plus years. Wondering what your thoughts are on setting up a family trust versus individual investing. We have three kids and one day would love to share some of the shares and money with them. God knows they'll need help given where the housing market is.
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly true that it's easier to distribute money to children if it's through a family trust. Uh, yes. And they're, and they're um, beneficiaries of the trust. So, yeah, I mean, that's if, if that's what you intend to do, it probably would be worth setting up a family trust.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's easier and more tax effective so you will need proper advice jake so go and see a planner and accountant about how to set it up and what will be involved and what yeah, restrictions yep. it will place on you because it will place some restrictions um yeah so you you'll want to go into it pretty carefully but uh yeah 180k that's a that, that's a good start to helping your kids out down the track
1: yeah that's right and uh, definitely go and see an accountant you need an accountant to set the thing up anyway Yeah, that's right.
0: And then it'll need to be audited and all that sort of stuff. So there's a bit of work in. It's not a set-and-forget model.
1: Uh, Alan says, much appreciate your visit to the business address in East Melbourne. My problem is writing off the investment I made in iSign. This is a tax loss. The accountants will not let me sell them to my wife for a nominal amount. Neither entity is found when searching delisted Australia website to engineer a sale. Do you know of any alternative strategy? The lesson is to diversify bets. You also talked about Afterpay when it was cheap. Um, that was it's a bit of a cryptic question but uh, um,
0: so we should explain Alan this result this relates to I sign this which has a couple of subsidiaries trading one of which you visited in East Melbourne. well it was uh, demerged the company was de
1: merged into two into two businesses. one uh, I sign this which is now based in Cyprus and the other is um, Southern Cross payments. Uh, which is based in East Melbourne. I couldn't find their phone number, so I showed up at their office and um, barged in. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, carry on. So I think the problem Alan's got here is
0: that he he needs some sort of event. I mean, to to his point, I think he's right, that as these companies are still uh, in operation, um, yes, his shares have been delisted and he can't sell them on an exchange but because the companies aren't in liquidation i, I can see his problem and I, but I, i'm not sure what the answer is alan I, I, until there's some
1: sort of resolution there he's probably a bit stuck
0: yeah well you got to find a,
1: if he wants to sell them he's got to find a buyer apparently his wife wants to buy them <laughs> yes <laughs> not very much um i'm not quite sure what the strategy is in selling them to his wife for a nominal amount um
0: uh, well that would that would allow him to crystallise a tax loss that he
1: could use against his, his, yeah, right. his broader portfolio, I guess. No, that's right. So it needs to be an arm's length uh an arm's length transaction, not to his wife, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So um, you know, you need to find an arm's length buyer, uh, Alan, if you want to crystallise a tax loss. Yes. Yes. I'm um, not
0: not entirely sure how easy that's going to be, Alan. You may be stuck for a little bit longer until uh, the affairs of these companies are sort of more clear. Yeah. Um, Phil asks, you've been talking a little lately about unlisted assets in super funds and the element of risk it represents. What do you feel as a general stab is a reasonable or unreasonable level of unlisted assets in a super fund? Given the, that the English mob, this is the UK pension businesses, ran into some trouble recently. Also, why do super funds just pay... Pay just low rates on cash compared to say sticking your money as a non uh, as a non super account with U Bank or ING or many others.
1: Okay, well uh, uh, the, the the industry funds are sort of uh, heading towards about fifty percent unlisted assets. Some of them uh, are. Yep. I think that's I think that's reasonable. Um, uh, what do you think, James?
0: I think that's reasonable because of the way the world's going, we're just going to see more unlisted. Businesses uh, that the the once upon a time there was a sort of incentive to list because it allowed you to access capital markets, so you could raise equity and do things. You could go and make acquisitions or make distributions. the 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 problem is, it's being a listed company is a little bit more painful than it once was. It's expensive. There's scrutiny, all that sort of thing. And then the other thing is, there's so much more private funding available that you don't need to necessarily raise capital through public markets. You can go get private credit or private equity and do the same thing in a much more under-the-radar way. So I think the way of the world is that we're going to see more unlisted assets. Is 50% the right amount? I don't know. I don't know. My only worry, Alan, is if we had some serious shock to the system, and we got close to this when the government Uh, allowed people to take lots of money out of their super funds during the pandemic. If they're forced to raise cash quickly, selling an unlisted asset quickly at a good price isn't very easy. If you've got to flog off a toll road in Tulsa or a private equity business, you know, there's no ready buyer. It's not like a, you know, bonds or stocks. So, that's my only caveat, that we probably won't know the reasonableness until there's a real stress that tests that for us. So, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe 50% is getting too
1: high. Yeah, well, the reason I think it's okay is because um, super funds aren't banks. You know, you, the, the money's locked up. It's very... I mean, yes, there was a period, there was a time in the pandemic where the government said you can get some out, but that's really rare. That's not. That doesn't happen. No. Yeah, but we, we will be... You know, we're we'll we're going into this drawdown phase, Alan. So that there will be more calls on super funds. Yeah, but it's not they, don't, they won't come out of the blue. Everyone the, the no, super funds no. can can see what's going on with their with the age, and um, you know retirement uh, of their of their members. They can see they can see what's coming. So yeah,
0: I, I just think we we need more transparency around these. We're, people need to understand that. What unlisted assets they own? What are they worth? What are the risks associated with them? I just think a bit, you know, a, bit, a better conversation is what we need around that.
1: So, do you, do you understand the next question about low rates on oh, cash?
0: I think um, the returns on cash in super funds would be lower than in a
1: bank because of the fees that a super fund would charge. That, that yeah, that's, of course, that's my. Um, so, you, yeah, you, you wouldn't, Phil. You wouldn't have your money in cash through a super fund if you if you're right. I mean, if you want to have if you just want to have cash, it might as well just be uh, with you Bank or ING. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, because you've got to pay fees in the super fund. I mean, I, the, the, I suppose he's talking about super fund. Super funds have a cash option, do they? You can put your all your money through the super fund in cash. You, you can, you you could do that. Yeah, but uh, but I think um, Phil's
0: <laughs> Phil's found the problem that that, that that there will be fees associated with doing that, and so your returns aren't going to be as good.
1: Yeah. Uh, Stuart says, My son is 17 and has slowly built up around $20,000 in shares from his job at the local supermarket, uh, AFIC and VAS. So far, that's VAS is the um, Vanguard fund, is it? Right. Okay. I think an index fund. Anyway, what do you think of him buying and holding a broad leveraged index, broad leveraged index ETF like GEAR for the very long term, IG, i.e., 50, 60, 70 years? Anything specific to look out for? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you reckon? Well, look, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I
0: don't know anything about that. It's it's a geared uh, sort of diversified fund. Sounds sort of fine notionally. I wouldn't be whacking it all in one ETF though, Alan. I'd, I'd have a couple of different ones um, and and I'd sort of, you know, check back, the, check back on them every five years rather than just imagining you're going to let them sit for 50 or 60 or 70.
1: Yeah, but look, in principle, the idea of holding uh, lever or having leverage for a long for the long term is yes. okay, I guess, as long as because yeah. you- you're not you're not worried about short term volatility.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Theoretically, it's fine. Is that vehicle the right one to do it with? Um, not sure. He's certainly at the. <laughs> His son certainly at the at uh, age at the age where you where you'd be prepared to
1: take a bit more risk like that anyway he's going to he shouldn't be holding it for 50 60 70 years anyway he needs a house in a few yeah years that's years. that's exactly right yeah. it, so it needs to be 20 years he's got to it's got to be a house deposit surely yeah. i yeah. Really
0: well and that's what his super funds going to be for um to hold for <laughs> those very long periods so
1: yeah, that's yeah, right yeah so he's got money out of outside super that's for a house deposit. Unless Stuart's going to cough up for the house deposit, maybe he is. He sounds like a
0: smart. They sound like a couple of smart people. So good yeah, on the son for getting twenty grand's worth of shares at seventeen. That's a great effort. That's right. Good on him. Go. Your turn. Beta shares. Tim asks. Beta shares has an ETF called HBRD or hybrid, if you will spell it out. I'm interested in hearing how you think investing in the ETF compares with investing in bank hybrids directly. And what are the advantages or disadvantages of each approach?
1: Uh, well, uh, uh, beta shares, hybrid, e- e- ETF, uh, invest in a few hybrids. So, look, you know, if you feel like doing that yourself and keeping an eye on I mean, them, that's fine. Um, you're actually paying B- beta shares a fee to do it for you. You know, it's just like hiring someone to look after your little portfolio of hybrids.
0: Yeah, and you get a bit of diversification, I guess. So, yeah, I guess if you don't feel confident, Alan, in... Picking which hybrid suits you best, that might be a
1: reasonable way to go. Exactly. That's right. Um, But, you know, alternatively, you just uh, load up on the big four banks hybrids and leave it at that. You could and not pay a fee if you wanted to. Yeah. yep. I don't know whether it's the same Tim, but Tim says, a new CEO, Gabriel Ivanov, took over the reins at Mincor Resources last Monday. How How many mining companies do you know that are being run by women? Do you think you could line up an interview? I'd be interested to hear the, her story. I think she's come from running a division of Oz Minerals. Um, well, it's not really a question, just a suggestion for an interview. I think that's a great idea. Well, uh, um, Amanda, uh, are there many mining companies run by women? Uh,
0: there's a couple. Amanda Lacaze at Linus, which is the rare earths miner. Yep. Um, Elizabeth Gaines was at uh, Fortescue yep. until very recently. And I guess I'd throw in she mentioned Os Minerals. So you could throw in Rebecca McGrath is the chairman of Oz Minerals. Yep. Um, highly respected. So yeah, there's a few. Um, obviously, mining's been a pretty blokey sector, but that is starting to change. And Amanda Lecayes is a is a um, is a is a great great manager, great sort of uh, storyteller, great fun. So uh, she's another one to watch out for. Mm. Rob asks, I've, I've got around 500000 in a balanced super fund and paid last year paid over 4000 in fees at, 7 point, at at 0.72% or 72 basis points. My son, who is a barefoot fan, says I should put it all in the indexed diversified funds where you only pay 0.14% in fees. Comparing the 10-year performance of 9.32% for Oz Super's balanced fund and the 737 for indexed diversified fund, I think I'm still better off in the balance fund. I know you can only give general advice, but how do you think 0.72% fees, is it starting to get too high and are there balanced diversified index funds with very low fees that are a better way to go generally for your super?
1: Yeah, well, so Rob, it's a, it's a difference between super and non-super. I mean, the, the super fund, 0.72%, is not the same as an index diversified fund uh, charging 0.14, it, it, if you wanted to have your super in the index diversified fund, you'd have to set up an SMSF, a, a self-managed super fund, and then invest in the index fund. And the trouble is, you know, you, you'll pay <clears throat> you'll pay a fair bit to set up the fund, uh, set up the SMSF, you'll be paying ongoing accounting fees to your accountant and you need to get it audited. So the super fund is actually uh, providing a service for that for that difference between 0.72 and 0.14, yes. um, so you, and you're paying for the service.
0: Yeah, and and uh, to to come back to our previous answer about unlisted assets, your super funds doing different things. It's getting you into places that you can't go as a retail investor. It's getting into private equity, into unlisted uh, infrastructure assets. It's getting you exposure to a much broader range of things than a diversified index fund, which is only invested in the public markets, that, that's all that'll do for you. So you are getting something for your fees. Um, and I yep. think, I, I actually don't think um, Scott Pape's advice is, is quite as clear cut as that. I think he says, find the right super fund that works for you. That's, that's as low as fee as possible, but then extra savings can go into a in, uh, diversified index fund if that works for you. So um yeah, tell your son he's. He, he, I think he's on the right track, but
1: there is a value in in what super funds do. Yeah, so Rob and Rob Super Fund is Australian Super. Uh, I mean, 072 percent. I, I I couldn't tell you if that's the lowest in the market, but it's pretty low. Yeah. Um, and it's okay. Yep. So he's asking us, do do, do we think 072 percent is is getting too high? And I think it's roundabout about what it ought to be. I mean, you might you might find one that. Um, charges a little less than that, but, not you know, uh, you'll, you'll struggle. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Chris says, in the November ten episode of the Money Cafe, Alan says that in- increased interest rates disproportionately affect poor people because apparently they are the only ones who have loans. He goes on to say that rich people have got the savings. They're getting the increase, increased interest rates on their savings. This is a remarkably superficial analysis. Indeed, the rich people are getting an extra one or two percent on their cash accounts, but because of the increased interest rates, their superannuation funds are down around ten percent, their share portfolios are down around twenty percent, and their home values will fall around twenty percent. Anyone who does not lose some sleep because of this must be very rich indeed. Okay, fair enough, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I'm gonna step in for you
0: there, Alan. I I I I I take it chris's point but i think the point you were trying to make alan and and i think this was a couple of weeks ago was that the 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 burden of uh higher rates is felt most by the most by the poor because they don't have as much income to fall back on so a higher proportion of their income goes to mortgage payments yes and and thus sort of makes their life their 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 spending outside of that becomes even more restricted If, if you're richer not only do you have more income, but you've got uh, income from your savings that you're that is increasing as well. So I don't think anyone's sort of everyone's entitled to lose sleep in this environment because it's tough, but the, the, it is tougher for, for lower income people.
1: Yes, and I, and I would go further and say that monetary policy in general is an engine of inequality. Yes, when uh, when interest rates are cut, asset prices go up, and the rich benefit. When interest rates uh, go up, um, the rich benefit again. Yeah, yep. So. No doubt Chris will um, take issue with that,
0: but uh, uh, you know, I think you're broadly right. Steve says a lot of AGM notices are coming out now, and many are including a resolution to change their constitution to allow for virtual-only general meetings, including AGMs. I can understand the benefit of having some shareholder meetings virtually to save costs. But surely the AGM should have a physical component, i.e. hybrid meetings at a minimum, so the company owners have an opportunity to look their appointed directors in the eye once a year. Thoughts? I wonder if Steve is Stephen Main. <laughs> Sounds well, like
1: he's, it. Our, he's our annual meeting expert, so, yeah, but he's probably the one to answer this. But uh, my view is, yeah, they should be
0: hybrid. I could not agree more. I think this is really important, particularly for public companies. If you want to become the director of a public company, part of that, Part of what you get paid your fees for is t- for standing up in front of uh, investors and facing some questions. Sometimes those questions will be difficult and uncomfortable. Most of the time they won't be. But having the chance to meet your your owners in person, uh, giving them that option is really important. So hybrid meetings, great idea. Virtual only, no thanks.
1: But it seems like the only person asking questions at the moment is Stephen Mayne.
0: Oh no, no! I, I, I was at, I was at the AGM of the AGL AGM the other day, and there were some good questions asked. Oh,
1: um, okay. But yes, <laughs> Stephen's a pro. He's yeah, it's very good. Well, that's the uh, that was the last question, so um, that's it. Um, thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of the Money Cafe, and we'll be back with Stephen May next week. So send in a question for him or me. To the Money Cafe at EurekaReport.com.au. So So um, until next week, I'm Alan Collier, founder of Eureka Report uh, and all the other stuff. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer
0: columnist at the Australian Financial Review. See you next week.